Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS. And that link will be in the show notes. Diversity is pretty important because different fibers do different things. Different soluble fibers, even in that family, feed different microbes in our microbiome. Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance have let a lot of us down. We're over-medicated and underserved. At The Less Stressed Life, we're a community of health-savvy women exploring solutions outside of our traditional Western medicine toolbox and training to raise the bar and change our stories. Each week, our hope is that you leave our sessions inspired to learn, grow, and share these stories to raise the bar in your life and home. Today on The Less Stressed Life, I have Megan Barnett, who is the developer and co-founder of Fluorosophy, which is an organic soluble fiber blend. And she's also co-owner of BioLounge, a functional medicine and longevity clinic in Portland, Oregon. She has her BS in dietetics and MS in functional medicine and human nutrition and is board certified as a clinical nutrition specialist. She works as a functional medicine nutritionist with patients aiming to identify and correct underlying imbalances and infections and as an educator to providers interested in integrative and precision medicine. She has a special interest in the relationship between soluble fiber and health optimization, which propelled her to develop her own type of soluble fiber blend fluorosophy. So we're going to talk all about fiber today because she loves talking about fiber. So welcome, Megan. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, well, maybe we should start. I mean, everyone here is an intelligent listener, but I think as I was just tripping over the words fiber a couple of times, I thought, you know, maybe we should dispel or talk about kind of how we look at fiber from more of a conventional standpoint and then how it gets pushed or or brought up and that there's different kinds and, and all of that. So maybe like let's lay the foundation of 101 of what is fiber and what's been our traditional shtick around fiber and yeah. then how could we be doing it better? Sure. You know, growing up, I had a, I actually personally had a lot of doctors that said, you just need to eat more fiber. I'd always had gut issues. And I remember thinking like, man, I cannot fit another vegetable into my diet. I feel like that's all I eat. And even through all of my education, I never really learned the difference between soluble and insoluble fiber, which was kind of surprising. It not only didn't come up in undergrad and dietetics, it didn't come up in a graduate program aimed specifically at the gut. 
So a couple of years ago, I came to understand this difference between insoluble and soluble fiber. And the best way that I can explain it is insoluble fiber, we think of when we think of all of our vegetables and fruits and the structure they have, almost the crunch, you know, you, you chew down on something, get that crunch. It's, that's the insoluble fiber that gives it structure. Soluble fiber, on the other hand, you're going to see more often in things like beans and lentils, chia, flax, etc. That, you know, think about chia pudding, for instance, that has become now very popular, right? You get chia seeds wet, they become gelatinous, it's a little bit gross, they're a little mucusy in your mouth. That's soluble fiber. We see that in beans, you know, if you let chickpeas sit around for a long time in water. And those two fibers behave very differently in the body. Insoluble fiber is often recommended to us, you know, eat more vegetables when we have digestive issues. But in reality, what it does is it irritates the lining of the intestinal wall. When I say irritate, which sounds bad, but that's a good thing. It increases peristalsis. So it can help bulk your stool and then move things along. Soluble fiber does many more things that, in you know, not that I am biased or anything, but I do feel like soluble fiber does all these magical things in the digestive tract that it doesn't get credit for. So, you know, I kind of visualize soluble fiber as it moves down the digestive tract. And I think that's helpful in understanding what it's doing and why it's important. So if you consume, let's just say a plate full of beans, the first stop that's important is your actual stomach organ. And when it moves into the stomach organ, it expands, that fiber expands, it helps you feel fuller longer. And then it actually slows the absorption of carbohydrates from our meal, whatever else we're eating or the carbohydrates from those beans. So it can stabilize your blood sugar. As we move down further into the digestive tract, let's move into the small intestine. This is where there's some crazy things that happen that I feel like women, this is the PSA to women, because it's in this space where the gallbladder is now going to secrete bile. Soluble fiber binds to bile. It attaches to it like two little Lego blocks. Bile is made of cholesterol. So one of the things soluble fiber does is bind to this bile that's made of cholesterol and it prevents it from being reabsorbed into your bloodstream, therefore lowering your overall cholesterol levels, which is cool. Carries that bile into your colon and out into your toilet. But bile is actually a vehicle for getting rid of other things. Bile can be containing toxins. It can also be containing estrogen. So lots of the women that I work with have dealt with hormone issues their entire life. And when we increase their soluble fiber significantly, what it does is drop their overall estrogen levels and help to balance out their hormones. Because if you're consistently consuming that soluble fiber, it's consistently binding the bile that's holding estrogen. And again, moving it into the colon and out into the toilet. From that point, as it moves into the large intestine, into the colon, soluble fiber becomes a food source for your microbiome, your healthy microbes, increasing short-chain fatty acids, which feed the colon cells and can help reconstitute the integrity of the colon wall. And it gives you this beautiful bowel movement. So we all love good poop and soluble fiber helps to do that by adjusting the water balance. So if you have loose stool, it helps firm up your stool by absorbing excess water. And if you have constipation or hard stool, it's going to bring water into your bowels. And so that helps loosen things up. So that's the whole travel plan of the soluble fiber from the beginning to the end. But that's why I say it does so many cool things that we just don't talk enough about. Well, it does. And to go back to your story, which thank you so much for sharing your story first, that was better. Anyway, you know, you always had gut issues and you were told, Hey, I couldn't add another vegetable to my diet, which was insoluble fiber. Cause you talked about the crunch, which is, I always like the mnemonic devices. Yeah. And then you talked about soluble fibers being chia, flax, beans, et cetera. 
So I want to talk about that piece of those and potential digestive issues that can pop up sometimes because that's the tricky part. It's like sometimes you don't tolerate things beautifully yes, initially. Exactly. And that's where it gets really exciting. It's like yep. that didn't work, <laughs> you know. So yep. I want to talk about what's tolerated well and not tolerated well. But before we even go there, let's talk about what's usually recommended. So like let's say it's just run of the mill and I'm sure there's listeners that have had this experience or someone they know, maybe it's their mom or their cousin or someone that's had this where they're just recommended to take Metamucil. And so talk about the difference between Metamucil. We didn't cover Metamucil and what type of fiber it is. So let's talk Mm -hmm. about that one and let's dive into positive negatives around soluble fibers. (laughs) Yeah. So a lot of the drugstore brands are psyllium husk. Some of them are wheat dextrin. Some of them are corn fiber. Oftentimes they're one fiber. They also are often irritants. Like I said, back to the insoluble fiber, you can induce bowel movements just by making the intestinal walls irritated because it increases peristalsis. Mm -hmm. But the other thing about soluble fiber, much like anything we eat, diversity is pretty important because different fibers do different things. Different soluble fibers, even in that family, feed different microbes in our microbiome. So my business partner always likes to say, I mean, you need to have five cups of vegetables a day, but you don't want them all to be broccoli right? There's a reason for that. And that's the same thing with soluble fiber. And I would say the other issue I see a lot with drugstore brands in in my patient base is that they have additives. They have other things that are actually fighting against them getting well. And we really want anything we're putting into our bodies to be doing no harm and to be clean. And to that end, something that is not filled with more toxins, more additives, more irritants tends to yield a better result. So let's talk about I think let's start with the context of soluble fiber because we've, Mm -hmm. I think, headed down that route on like that's a more useful one. But we have food sources of soluble fibers, chia, flax, beans, et cetera. Let's talk about some of the digestive issues that can come up with soluble fiber and then mitigating that. There's dosing, there's what else is going on, et cetera. Well, you know, I think both you and I know because of the work we do, it's really challenging for a lot of people to tolerate specific foods. And in this day and age, often we find they don't tolerate beans or lentils. We're Mm -hmm. we're removing whole, you know, food groups at times in order to reduce sensitivities or to get better results in one way or another, at least temporarily. So whether a person can't tolerate the foods that have these soluble fibers or they just can't tolerate the soluble fiber. Mm-hmm. That's often because of dysbiosis, because their microbiome cannot manage the breakdown of those fibers. Those soluble fibers are, in essence, the food. They're great for your microbiome, but they're extremely irritating to the microbiome if you don't have the healthy microbiome that allows for that breakdown. So dosing is really important. Starting extremely slowly is really important. The book that was written a couple of years ago, Fiber Fueled, that, that gastroenterologist spoke to that quite a bit. It's like he would start people on a teaspoon of beans a day or something just really small. And I agree with that. In my clinical practice, I see some people need to start with an eighth of a teaspoon of soluble fiber a day, and we slowly increase. I will say certain soluble fibers such as inulin, chicory root, corn fiber, those are very irritating to most people. They cause a lot of bloating. And oftentimes you don't get over that. You, you can't slow and slowly enough dose that to get over it because of the way that they're metabolized and the amount of gas that is excreted when our microbiome metabolizes them. But many soluble fibers, let's just say chia, don't tend to cause that level of irritation or bloating. Still, 
it's a start slow and slowly increase. But most of my clients can get up to over a tablespoon a day of taking soluble fiber as a supplement within a month, as long as they're eating a healthy diet alongside it. Yeah, it's a tricky push pull situation. Like, you know, one of the reasons someone can have you brought up that this is amazing for your clients that have estrogen excess and then yeah. clearing that because the binders allow, you know, the estrogen to kind of be bound up essentially, like in yeah. very, very short version. But it's a little tricky because sometimes estrogen can also be a gut, liver, you know, gut issue in general. And so there's, just a little push pill. And then I think if we're using the word, people are familiar with the term fiber as an umbrella term, but then there's lots of things underneath of it. It's just like saying, maybe people are becoming more aware of gut health, but there's many shades of what that looks like. So I want to start with, we just talked about the challenges that can happen if we've got gut dysbiosis and tolerating soluble fiber, even though it's useful. That's a whole problem. It's like a roadblock. Mm -hmm. However, not everyone is going to address the, their dysbiosis maybe in like a super comprehensive way, or they're going to look for other versions. So there are maybe, maybe not some fibers that are better tolerated with dysbiosis or the amount. So I think about, you know, when this makes sense to come in and how people are going to tolerate it. So I think that the question should be, can you consume fibers with dysbiosis successfully, perhaps? Gut imbalances. And maybe we could, could qualify that a little bit more. If you've got imbalances... Mm -hmm. may feed selectively on certain things. I don't know. I'll let you answer that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I had a, a large portion of my patient population that had SIBO or had symptoms of SIBO, I like to say, because that's a whole nother world, but they had upper gastric bloating, let's say. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I have found that with the right soluble fiber, that does not exacerbate symptoms whatsoever at all. Generally speaking, everything from... SIBO to ulcerative colitis to diverticulitis, trying to think of Crohn's, really significant gastrointestinal diseases or dysfunctions with the right soluble fiber do not get irritated. It's all about how those soluble fibers are metabolized by the microbes. If there's an overproduction of gas, there's an overproduction of gases by the microbiome as it metabolizes these fibers, that gas irritates the lining of the intestine and you tend to have symptoms, okay? Certain fibers, probably the most well-known in our field for these different conditions is partially hydrolyzed guar gum, often thought of as sun fiber, I think is the trademark name. That's the one that for years has been like, oh, you can give that to anyone. That's safe for anyone. That's safe for anybody with SIBO and beyond. It is well tolerated and it is all about how it's metabolized by the microbiome. So whether you are doing fantastically with your microbiome, but you have estrogen issues or you have constipation or diarrhea or some of these more significant GI dysfunctions or diseases with the right fiber, you can start at the beginning of treatment has been my experience with the other adjunct treatments. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go into each type of the supplemental fibers. You just brought up one. So let's start with partially hydrolyzed guar gum. Yeah. I wish I fully understood the biochemistry of why that is not irritating, but I can tell you this, the viscosity of the soluble fiber tends to be the ticket. How much water does it hold? Okay. So fibers such as chia seed, partially hydrolyzed guar gum, glucomannan, which comes from the konjac root that's been used forever in Japan. These are fibers that pull water and psyllium is this way as well. Pull water in. 
Psyllium is an interesting one though, because it really pulls water and it does that job extremely well. So I have a lot of patients that will start it and then immediately become bound up because it holds way too much water and then they're miserable. It's not because it's an irritant per se, it's because it's it's absorbing too much water, right? Mm -hmm. So this family of soluble fibers has a very high viscosity, holds a lot of water. There are other soluble fibers and let's go back to the inulin chicory root family. Those are just, you know, if somebody comes in, walks into the clinic and says, I can't do fiber, I just bloat like crazy, I'm miserable, it never ends, I can't get through my day, I go, okay, let's look at what you're taking because there's probably inulin in this or there's probably chicory in this, right? And they're less viscous, they're more easily broken down, again, by the, the microbiome and so therefore, again, more gas. There are other food sources like fructooligosaccharides and resistant starches that are also metabolized by the microbiome, but they don't have viscosity. They're not in that soluble fiber world where they're binding and pulling water in, in the way that these other soluble fibers are. So, and just to really be clear about that, the benefits of the binding of bile that we see that are so critical to the detoxification of our body and the movement of estrogen out of our body. And by way of that, the reduction in histamine in our gastrointestinal tract, therefore the reduction of irritation and inflammation, that's only done with soluble fiber binding bile. So let's make sure we are covering all the soluble fibers because sometimes on labels, you see FOS, you see GOS. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm probably forgetting some other ones. Sun fiber is the guar gum. I think that's partially yeah, hydrated. Yeah, yeah, it's just the patented, patented it one. Mm -hmm. And I have found that that's well tolerated, but there's GOS, FOS. There's one more other one I'm missing, isn't there? I can't remember. Yeah. Off the top of my head, I can't remember either. I don't even play in that. I don't, you know, that's a rodeo I stay away from because... FOS and GOS are can be really helpful for rebuilding a microbiome, but to get through that hump of irritation at the beginning, it's really, really challenging. I'm sure you've had that experience too. It will cause discomfort and gas and bloating far more often than we see that happening with soluble fibers. Okay. So let's talk about your favorite sources of soluble fibers. We've talked about mm -hmm. some sources of soluble fibers. Let's talk about your favorite sources. And then I actually am going to ask you about resistant versus soluble. And you just covered it very briefly, but you hear the word resistant starch, which is a little mm -hmm. different, right? You mm -hmm. like cook and refrigerate rice, you cook and refrigerate um, yep. potatoes and that can work well. I mean, for me, it, it tends to work well after gut is corrected, but let's talk yep. about, I'm actually going to start there um, sure. because that makes sense. Resistant starch versus soluble fiber. Sure. So a resistant starch is a chain of glucose. So when we think about carbohydrates, we're thinking about the carbohydrates that can be absorbed and used in our body to generate energy, right? So those sugars, those glucose molecules move into the bloodstream and we are then able to metabolize them on our own. Resistant starches are not absorbed into the bloodstream. They are resistant to absorption. So they actually move into the bowels and become a food source for our microbiome, it, much like soluble fiber. Okay, so that's resistant, non-resistant starches as far as how we're able to metabolize them. A resistant starch is a different molecular structure than a soluble fiber. There's no situation where a soluble fiber is going to be broken down and absorbed and a resistant starch is not going to bind. So there's a differentiator. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. We could have a little chart. This is what yeah. this one is. Yeah. This is what this yeah. one is. Yeah. All right. So back to what are your favorite types or sources of soluble fibers? In, like if someone walks into your office yeah. and they've got estrogen excess, would you start mm -hmm. them? Are you going to start them on fiber as your first line defense is part of the question too. 
That's a great question. So obviously in the nutrition field, we love for our patients to be able to do a lot of this with their food. And sometimes that's a huge challenge, especially in the world of gut issues and gut permeability, because oftentimes the food sources that have the highest amount of soluble fiber seem to not be well tolerated at the beginning. So if we can't use food, if we can't use beans and lentils and flax and chia, et cetera, even avocado, Brussels sprouts has soluble fiber. It's not just limited to the legumes and seeds. But if we know that we're not going to hit our mark, which in my general goal world for my patients as adults, it's about 20 grams of soluble fiber a day. So 20 grams of insoluble, 20 grams of soluble. I'm going to probably use a supplement. And as you introduced, I have my own supplement. So I use my own supplement in a clinical setting because I can dose it. So I know that I can start with, I'm going to give you a quarter teaspoon. Now I'm going to give you a half a teaspoon. I'm going to, now we're going to move up. It's harder to do that with food, right? It's harder to say exact doses and and be really measured in how we're shifting through treatment protocols. So when I have a person that has estrogen excess, or I work with a lot of teenagers that have hormone imbalance and a lot of women in perimenopause, that's probably the largest part of my practice. We start immediately with soluble fiber. So my blends are organic. So that was one of the differentiators because again, they're supposed to help you detoxify. And we have a blend that is for people that have loose stool, a blend that is for people that have constipation, and then one that we call the daily fix. And that is for often the most common for hormone issues. That said, it's really important to know that if you don't metabolize estrogen well through your liver, which is often the case when we have these MTHFR mutations and other issues with toxins. And and there's a lot of genetic components to this. You can take all the soluble fiber you want, but the estrogen isn't making it to your gut to be bound. It's not making it onto the bile. So I have a two-part protocol with most of the women I work with. And one is a liver support that has calcium deglucurate in it. And that's to help them start moving the estrogen through their liver That's going to attach it to the bile, shift it into the gallbladder, into the small intestine, and then we use the soluble fiber to bind. And we try to do that between meals. If you take the soluble fiber with your meals, it's going to bind a lot of the fat in your food and less effectively bind your bile. So I have people take it away from their meals or an hour before their food or even 15 minutes before their food. So I want to go to kind of how you formulated this for different conditions. But before we do that, you were talking about some of these vegetables where people say, but when I start to eat this, I have gas. So I actually Mm -hmm. want to stop and talk about that first, because that doesn't always mean that you can't tolerate it right short order. So let's address that problem. Like, let's say, you know, I never eat Brussels sprouts, but now that I'm eating Brussels sprouts or XYZ, I have more gas. And so explain that for people. Well, you know, I think Sometimes we can get really hyper-focused on our gut symptoms and sort of move away from what is normal and what is abnormal. It's fairly normal when you eat cruciferous vegetables to have a little more movement in the colon. There's a lot of fiber there. Anytime you consume more fiber, you're going to have more activity in the lower abdomen. I, I always talk to my patients about, tell me where you're feeling this, above the belly button or below the belly button, right? Because oftentimes these foods are being broken down in the colon and there is activity. So a little bit of movement, a little bit of bloat, if you're eating a lot of vegetables, doesn't surprise me. Other hand, if it's uncomfortable, if it's excessive, we're going to pull back a little bit and we're going to improve your microbiome because again, you should be able to eat these foods, right? 
Oftentimes also, because I collaborate a lot with Chinese medicine providers, we're talking about, can you tolerate raw food right now? Sometimes you can't. There's just not enough heat. There's not enough acid. There's not enough energy to break that raw food down well. And so we start on these vegetables pretty well cooked. And then we move to raw vegetables, if that's your preference, as your body's able to better break down the vegetables. But that is insoluble fiber. Mm-hmm. That's the insoluble fiber, you know, not breaking down well. Can I offer one other perspective and see if you agree with me? Yeah. Let's yeah. do that also. So I think that if you're just starting to eat these particular cruciferous vegetables, that sometimes you may not be making enzymes that break right. that down beautifully. And so it's like if you just start to eat them and then eat them more regularly, you start to tolerate them better. I totally agree. I totally agree. I think that's so often the case with anything in, in our diet. I'm sure you work with plenty of people that you know, that when they move away from their current way of eating, there's a huge transitionary period, but then they adapt. I mean, it's like consuming sugar and then taking it out or moving to a higher fat or higher protein diet. So I do really encourage people to stick with it, you know, and there's digestive enzymes that can help as well. For sure. So I want to underline something that you were talking about earlier, which is that fiber is necessitates your body's production of short chain fatty acids, which is a self-healing mechanism for your gut. So then let's talk about how sometimes special diets are really tricky. And I think this is partly a discussion on human instant gratification. And we don't have to get too into this because I think we're both pretty balanced. Like I'm just a realistic person that likes to eat food. And so that's just kind of my approach. And I assume my clients are kind of like that too. But I mean, like, let's go after 2010, it was paleo and it was keto and like after 2016 and now it's carnivore and it's like Mm -hmm. just a different flavor of the same thing. And I mean, I will say I indulge unhealthfully watching carnivore people on Instagram, but out of curiosity, but I'm just like, hello, where are your short chain fatty acids and your fibers? Anyway, that's my opinion. I just don't see, I don't see it. But sometimes when people restrict all these carbs or these fibers initially, when they've got a lot of gut dysbiosis and they feel better, I'm like, yeah, you had a bunch of gut imbalances, but I'd love to hear what your thought is there. Because to me, I'm like, it just doesn't make any, it doesn't make any sense. (laughs) You know, I was thinking all of those things. And then I listened to a very disruptive podcast with Dr. Sonnenberg a while back. And there was, he did some really interesting research. So the research he did found that, yes, our microbiome produces short-chain fatty acids, which is the fuel source for our colon cells. Our colon cells rely on that. And one of the byproducts of that is that it keeps the environment and the colon anaerobic, which is really critical for not growing the type of microbes that will hurt you. They like oxygen and we do not like oxygen for them. What they found was that people on ketogenic and carnivore diets do not actually rely on the short chain fatty acids. The colon cells will use ketones from the bloodstream to feed themselves. Mm -hmm. And my mind kind of went blown, right? Like, oh, that's crazy. It's interesting because I think we've seen all of these diet trends. You and I have, have lived through this as providers. And I see people that have extreme diagnoses, very severe illnesses, and sometimes a very restrictive diet seems to be the magic for a very severe illness, right? Like ketogenic with epilepsy, et cetera. I think many of these diets are overused as weight management or even longevity optimization, hacking, et cetera. They're very hard to maintain long-term. And so 
back to transitions, right? You put yourself on a carnivore diet for quite a while and then you burn out because you don't want to eat steak every day at lunch and you're over it, right? You have to then transition back and your microbiome is completely different at this point. That's a really hard transition. Mm -hmm. And so I tend to be very middle of the road like you and try really hard to help my patients be able to eat a lot of foods, a lot of diversity, especially after we get them through acute symptoms. Mm -hmm. So what can we do forever, right? And I think that is where we go back to things like soluble fiber. We know the human body thrives on that. That's, you know, we have epidemiological evidence for that. We used to eat up to 200 different types of soluble fiber in a year, you know, different varieties. We, we just do better with that. And we see it in cardiovascular research, you know, all that soluble fiber keeps our vascular systems healthy, our brains healthy. There you know, so I guess I would say there's a time and a place for really restrictive diets, but man, they're not the best for the whole. Yeah, no, that's cool to hear about. Thanks for sharing that because I thought there's got to be something happening. And I'm not surprised that the body has a mechanism. And way back when, when I worked for a fasting program, I did find literature that talked about our body does actually make short chain fatty acids through that process. But I'm not shocked that the body is adapting and then using ketones from the blood to to adapt overall. I just think I kind of like you. I think that I see a lot of burnout long term with something like that. And so if you want to do that, that's cool. And sometimes for people, it feels really good and it's really gratifying because they get kind of instant gratification. Yeah. But like you said, there is a time and a place where the diet shifts and I was just at a microbiome conference this weekend. And I can't remember all the... This did come up a little bit because there was a little talk about fasting and whatever. It wasn't a huge piece of it, but just that even people who talk about this a lot have kind of started to talk about carb cycling and all yeah. things. Again, we're just being balanced. Like I think I get you and I probably both get questions occasionally from the general public. It's like, well, what should I be on? It's like, well, you know, we've probably already on our own been on our personal journeys with experimentation of this. So it's like, I don't think it hurts to experiment with things if you just like to experiment. It's just that, you know, I like to eat. We like to eat. and But I think it's important too. And Chris, I think this is something your audience will probably find interesting. If you're coming from a place of dysbiosis, which a lot of people have grown up eating a processed food diet and a high sugar diet, that, that's going to lend itself to dysbiosis, right? One of the more recent areas of research they found is that if you eat a higher carbohydrate diet, more processed food, higher carbohydrate diet, and increase the level of candida in the colon, especially in tandem with other infections or dysbiotic microorganisms, you can actually shift your colon cells to relying on glucose for fuel. And it does change the environment to an aerobic environment, too much oxygen. Trying to move that back is a real challenge. It's really, really, really hard to do that. That is not something that happens overnight because the colon cells no longer want butyrate. They don't want short chain fatty acids anymore. They're highly reliant on glucose. Instead, they just don't want to go back. And we see that perpetuating these microbes that like to live in oxygen. They just have the right environment. And mm -hmm. so you take a person like that and you put them on a carnivore diet, they feel amazing right? because like, oh, now I don't have all those toxins being produced by excess candida or excess, you know, we have in Portland actually tons of Giardia. We just have a very high level of Giardia. And so we have a lot of patients battling that and it's similar. You'll get that oxygen rich environment and a lot of symptoms. So I think people can get, you know, in a couple of days of being on a different diet, they feel like, oh my gosh, I'm a whole new person. But it's often because where they came from was mm -hmm. really problematic, right? 
yeah, it takes like maybe three days to shift microbiota with diet. So if you do do like a significant experiment, it can be kind of cool. So it's not like a poo-poo. It's more like a Hey, you don't have to only eat carnivore for nine months. Right, right, you know? right. right. It's make, totally. But you can try something for a little bit and mm-hmm. see if you like it. And then there's also going to be a shift after that. So no matter what kind of diet shift you make, even if you decide to remove all the processed things and just go to whole foods that are lower in sugar, you may still have a positive impact. And maybe, right? Like that's Mostly. always a good first step. There's always is. a nice first step. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's a more, I think, sustainable first step for Mm -hmm. sure. Right. It's a good, that's a good pattern to start from. Like let's start with whole colorful foods, novel. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So we covered types of fibers, kind of, let's come back to that a little bit. So we talked about the utility of supplements and versus food. And that's reasonable, I think, because we're just not always perfect or we're traveling or whatever. And we do need to poop because we do need to clear things out. So you use different types of essentially food-based fibers, but it seems like you use them in different ratios for different conditions. This Mm -hmm. is just my assumption here. So for example, if someone's having loose stool, you use chia seed powder, which is, so we know about like ground versus whole flax. Mm-hmm. And when I read chia seed powder, people don't use chia seed powder. They use chia yeah. seeds. Is there anything yeah. we should know about whole chia seeds versus chia seed powder? Because the carnivores I like to follow complain about chia seeds all the time <laughs> and their gelatinous mess getting stuck in the gut. So anything I, I should know. know about whole versus seed powder? Because that's, you know, we do flax seed powder mm-hmm. and whole, but we don't talk about chia seed powder. So before I continue, anything to say about that? Yeah. So when the chia seeds are ground down into a powder, they have more binding capacity and that's surface area. They are able to absorb more water and bind at a higher capacity to bile. Cool. Yeah. All and right. we, don't, we don't see them a lot on the market. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Cause do not make chia seed pudding out of chia seed powder. That will be, that will not be a success in your kitchen, but it's great as a supplement. Yeah. Well, I want to digest all of these. (laughs) I want to, uh, pun was not intended, but it came in anyway. So here we are. So glucomannan we talked about from Konjac. I think on the market, the only place I've remember seeing this is like in miracle noodles and things. I don't really see that anywhere else. It's otherwise you're only going to find glucomannan in a supplement and correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Acacia gum. This is from a tree. Is that right? Yeah. And it's a really good binder as well. It's also very well known to balance blood sugar, the same with glucomannan. And so that's why those were added to my supplement line in part, because yes, they do all the binding. They do the expansion to help you feel fuller. They feed the microbiome, but they're known as, as glucose managers. Mm-hmm. Do these fit under the gluco oligosaccharides or do we not even care about categorizing them? They don't. Okay. Do they fit under any category? within the, you know, of my knowledge base around fiber, they fall under purely under the soluble fiber. They are. Yeah. Yeah. Just curious. Cause they're not a legal sacker. They're kind of like, there's kind of a lot of tangents we could go off on. I know. But then finally there's sun fiber, which is like really a trademarked Mm -hmm. type of a guar, right? Yeah. It's a guar. It's a guar that has been broken down. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. been hydrolyzed. So it is easier to break down in the system. And it doesn't only exist as sun fiber. They just have trademarked yeah. partially heterosgar gum. And oftentimes you will see sun fiber as the additive in other people's blends. Mm-hmm. So we've got tree, tree, root, 
seed yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for soluble yeah. fibers. And okay. then psyllium and then psyllium. Two of mm-hmm. our blends have psyllium in them as well. Okay. The husk. So, okay. So if we're loose, you're doing more chia, more acacia gum, more glucomannan, more sun fiber. You started and you said, oh, chia powder when blended, you know, has more binding power. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can kind of go through and tell me where, and then the psyllium has, uh, I thought that one really soaked up water. Oh, I so see what this psyllium, is. It, yeah. Psyllium is what we, I have a more weighted amount of psyllium in my blend called firm up, which is for loose stools because it absorbs so much water. And, you know, what ended up happening was prior to developing fluorosophy, I would have people call me and just say, I'm constipated. What do I do? And I would put them religiously on two tablespoons of chia seed a day, magnesium citrate and a gluten dairy free diet for two weeks, just and then call me, tell me what happens. And nine times out of 10, they would resolve, but it never got them better. It wasn't like, it was like, okay, now you're going to do this forever if you want to not have constipation, right? Well, I was aiming to create a product that would actually help them heal their gut and get better and not have to live on magnesium citrate and, you know, restricted diet forever. But that's where the chia seed actually came from when I was thinking about these blends, because I had so much experience using just chia seed and just psyllium for people mm-hmm. that had loose stool. Yeah. No, that's more novel. I don't really see chia seed in, in different blends. Yeah. So more psyllium when they are loose because it binds up water mm-hmm. and more chia when they are constipated because yep. it just helps. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So those are the main pieces. You talked about how I think acacia and glucomannan are really great for blood sugar. Mm-hmm. We talked about chia seed and spiny powder and psyllium and it's water loving power. Let's talk about clinical outcomes. If people are taking soluble fiber consistently, we kind of went through how this can be a food source. It's a food source for the microbiota to kind of heal itself. But what are the outcomes if you're taking fiber consistently? We talked a little bit about Mm -hmm. estrogen hormones, but what are some of the things that have just kind of blown your mind? Yeah. Well, circling back to estrogen and hormones, there's many situations where that blows my mind because I work with people that have had hormone imbalances for decades. I actually, before I took this product to market, I had a really close friend who had had hormone imbalance and very severe PMS, very heavy bleeding. And she was doing all the things right, right? She ate this beautiful whole food diet. She worked out every day. She's in the health field herself. And I started dropping off these little packets of soluble fiber mixes that I was like mixing up in little bowls in my kitchen at home. And I drop them on her door and say like, try this. Tell me what happens. I think if you bind your estrogens, you're going to do better. And she started doing so much better so quickly. She started in two months, she was having significantly fewer hormone symptoms and her bleeding was well controlled. She became my business partner. She was the person I called when I decided to take it to market because she was a business strategist. And I said, okay, you've had this experience, right? But she's one of probably now hundreds of women that have had that experience. We had a patient who started taking this and canceled her hysterectomy because Mm. her hormone symptoms improved so significantly. So I get to see that a lot. I really as a female myself, love seeing when people get to their period sneaks up on them, right? Instead of being horribly miserable for the week mm-hmm. before. So that's great. I do work with a lot of people that do suffer constipation, diarrhea. And I will say, this is a fantastic product for people that have diarrhea to mitigate symptoms. There is always a cause of diarrhea. Nine times out of 10 in the clinic, it's a parasitic infection when we mm-hmm. test. So I don't want to encourage people to use 
this product and because they're not asymptomatic, think they're better because again, there's often a trigger of that that's infectious, but we do see those symptoms get better. So people get reduced urgency and they can go live their lives, which is really nice. But we use it a lot for people that are suffering ulcerative colitis and are suffering with Crohn's and SIBO. And we see them get better. That, that is pretty incredible when we pair those things with L-glutamine and zinc and some other things that support the microbiome because it's never a one-off. You know, you and I both know this. It's not like one thing fixes everything. Right. It's a support that really helps the healing process because of what it does in the body. But when you see people that have suffered for a decade with a gastrointestinal disease that get an, a significant improvement in their symptoms, it's very gratifying. And yeah. just constipation on its own. I mean, we work with a lot of little kiddos that are just miserable. And this is something we teach the parents how to cook it into their meals and how to put it in different breads and recipes and this and that. So they're getting all the soluble fiber in their diet because the kids don't really want to mix it up and drink it. And we see great improvements. So it's it's just, it's gratifying. Yeah, for sure. Before we kind of wrap up and, and talk about where do people find you? One thing that I think we touched on a little bit, but was there anything else that we need to say for people that are dealing with small intestinal bacteria overgrowth or IBS-like mm-hmm. symptoms where there's fibers that they cannot tolerate? I think we we kind of covered like chicory, inulin, et cetera. And I just want to mm-hmm. kind of like wrap that up into a bow. Insoluble, definitely a problem for everyone, right? Yeah. Or they can yeah. be. It, it they can, can be. They can, can be. be. Yeah, I meant yeah. more like chicory and inulin because I agree with you. You see that. And I think to break, make that easier, if you're seeing like a fiber bar, it's probably got inulin and chicory. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so you may start to see some digestive distress from that. Is there anything else that we should make sure put an asterisk next to if someone's dealing with gut issues right now? Like, what would your advice be to them if they would like to be able to tolerate fibers? Like, and I think we have covered that, but we're going to wrap it up into a nice little package because we talked about a lot of things. Yeah, I would say hyper focus and especially in SIBO, because this is one that just I feel like a lot of controversy around SIBO. My experience with SIBO is that the symptoms of bloating are caused by irritation of the intestinal wall, which can be irritated by microbes fermenting things, metabolizing in the small intestine, but also can be caused by other things irritating the wall of the intestine. So for instance, there's a provider in town that prescribes a a drug called chromalin. Chromalin calms the histamine producing molecules in the small intestine. And guess what? SIBO symptoms go away doesn't kill the microbes. It just calms the irritating response of the wall of the intestine. So when I work with people that have SIBO symptoms, because that one's so common, it is a focus on reducing sugars because that is going to irritate the, the lining of the intestines. We typically will take people off of food sensitivities temporarily, but soluble fibers will improve the situation. These specific soluble fibers, they will not irritate those microbes. Those microbes are not going to ferment and metabolize those and cause more irritation to the lining. Yes. Chicory root, inulin. Yes. These soluble fibers will actually help move things through, help provide those short chain fatty acids and and improve the health of the, even the small intestinal wall. One last thing I was thinking that we should underline is where people can find you online. Oh, great. Yes. So you can find me at thinkfluorosophy.com. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Megan. One more thing I wanted to underline was that diversity, which we know, and I'm going to very much paraphrase this, but since I was at this microbiome conference this weekend, they were talking about looking at microbiota data from, you know, the original people who did the like worldwide studies. I don't remember the name of them right now. doesn't matter. But I believe it was that like the United States essentially is like one quarter of as diverse. Like we have like 
about yeah. 25% of the diversity that we could potentially see if people were doing like lots of diversity and feeding lots of different microbes. And diversity is like how the, it's the body's checks and balances system. So it's nice to see today. I'm glad we talked about like multiple food-based sources because they all kind of preferentially feed in a little different way. So they do. Yep. anyway, yeah. Yep. Diversity is key. Diversity is key. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Sharing and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help us succeed with our mission to help integrate the best of East and West and empower you to raise the bar on your health story. Just go to reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. That's reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. And you'll be taken directly to a page where you can insert your review and hit post.